this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Manichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Did I say Dig Me Out Union twice or did I say DMO? I don't know. I just, I'm a little tired. It was a long day. Uh, you nailed it. You're I good. nailed it. Okay, good. Woo. Hey. Let me prop you up. Thank you. Keep uh, going. Guess who's back, Jay? Even though we haven't changed clothes from the last time, uh, the last interview. <laughs> <laughs> this is a. Uh, we, we're going to do the whole uh, season in the same clothes. That way, you know, honestly, we have editing continuity. We should. We should have uniforms that we wear. Maybe like a jumpsuit or tracksuit. Continuity. That's the word. Yeah. Uh, I think. I think. Dig me out. Tracksuits are in our future. I'm just saying. Welcome back, Chip Midnight. That means it's an interview episode. How you doing? Good. You know, uh, hearing that intro, I we've talked about themes. We have the Eminem, Guess Who's Back. Like, that's a song, right? Yeah. Back again. That's, that's as much as Eminem lyrics I know, but Guess Who's <laughs> Back again. That's more than slim I know. Shady. I'm Slim Slim Chip or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not go. Slim Chip. Yeah. Chip. I'm back. You're back. Tell everybody who you had a chance to talk to for this episode. I will. I talked to uh, Dominique and Andy from the band Ivy. Uh, Ivy. They are promoting their, the first time, the first time on vinyl, because as you guys know, in the nineties, vinyl was not King. And so not a ton of stuff got pressed on vinyl, at least not to the way it is being today. And so a lot of the nineties bands are, finally putting stuff out on vinyl. And so Ivy's Apartment Life, their 1997 release on Atlantic Records, is finally coming out on vinyl on Barn on Records. And as they say in the interview, I think, if not the interview they said after the interview, um, the person who runs Barn None, I think was like one of their early managers or worked for their label. They have connections. And so this person has kept in touch with them over the years and, and um, was very excited to be able to finally offer this to people on vinyl. So do I you guys know Ivy? Yeah, I didn't realize how they had put out six albums. I thought of them as sort of like a, a one or two album band aside from Fountains yeah. of Wayne for Adam Schlesinger. Um, but they actually were pretty busy for a while. From 94 yeah. to 2011, they put out six albums. Yeah, so, and then there was a bunch of EPs and singles during that time as well. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Adam, so they were a three-piece. Um, you know, we do talk about having different drummers and different other musicians kind of help out on tour and, and on, on albums, but it was really the three of them writing songs together. And as you mentioned, Adam uh, Schlesinger, Schlesinger uh, who also during that same time period was in Fountains of Wayne. And we talk about that a little bit. I was like, how does, how does he manage two major label bands? And they, they give you the answer to that. And um, uh, they met in New York city. Uh, I think originally um, Andy, kind of maybe put out an ad and, and Adam showed up with, um, with, I think maybe even Chris from, from Fountains of Wayne. Adam definitely showed up. And, and I think originally they were kind of trying to get Andy to join what would become Fountains of Wayne or some band at the time. And Andy said, nah, I'm a singer. I'm, I don't want to join your band. You should join my band. And Adam joined the band. 
the one thing that's interesting, and we, we definitely get to this topic is, I'm sure you guys have covered this throughout the years, but Ivy was on in the nineties, like four different labels, mm. which mm-hmm. is pretty unheard of. I know bands from the nineties who like, they get dropped the first time and it's like, you've got the major label stink and like triple fast action got dropped by capital and couldn't find another deal. And eventually uh, deep Elm picked them up, right. Uh, an indie label, but, but Ivy started off on seed records. Um, seed, you might know, uh, put out matter roses albums too. And there's a really interesting story that Andy talks a lot about seed. Seed essentially was a label under the Atlantic umbrella, but they were trying to act like an indie so that people wouldn't be like, Oh, it's a major label thing. Um, they were on Seed, they were on Atlantic, they were on 550, which was a Sony label, and then on Network. And Tim, to your point, um, I didn't realize it had that many albums out either. Uh, so, yeah. Interesting. So, um, Network, was a, ne- Network was a good deal, and a little bit of a spoiler, they were able to maintain the band and maintain their career and put those albums out and get a deal with Network because... At the end of the early, at the end of the late '90s, early 2000s, there they had very aggressive management, who started shopping their music out for placements on TV shows and movies and commercials. And again, they they go into a lot of details, but they'll tell you right off the bat that they got paid way more to do that stuff than any record label deal they ever had, and that really sustained the band well beyond what what would have happened had they just been only getting money from the label. Interesting. All right. Getting those uh, business tidbits. Yeah. Let's get into this interview. Thank you, Chip, uh, for another one. Let's uh, hear your talk with Andy and Dominique from Ivy. So the podcast is all about the 90s, and 1990 was 33 years ago, which seems impossible. What I'm wondering, to kind of set the context, is what can you tell me about 1990, where you were? And kind of like, not just where you were physically, but like kind of headspace. And and, and again, knowing that it was 33 years ago, maybe you don't remember, because I'm not sure that I do. But <laughs> give me a general idea of 1990-ish for the two of you. Okay, so do you want, can I start in it? Is that okay? Well, you, you raise your hand and then. <laughs> okay. Yes, yeah, Dominique, go. So, okay, so in 1990, so I moved from Paris to New York in late uh, 1989. So two months later, it was like. Um, so I was supposed to come to New York only for, um, you know, six months to a year to learn English, actually. And when I came to New York, I, I just couldn't believe it, even though I was born in Paris, so I, I'm an urban girl. But New York was so out of control and so amazing that I just couldn't believe my eyes. And I was like, oh, this is a town where you don't go for six months or a year. This is a town where you stay, you know, you stay for a long time. So, and that's what I did. So um, I was, you know, I didn't speak English. I didn't know anyone. 
So I remember music was my passion. So I would go to all these little clubs in the East Village by myself and, uh, and listen to bands. And then I would meet people here and there. And, you know, and eventually I met Andy, you know, six months later. And, and then I met Adam a little later. And, um, but that was, okay, that, that's, that's my memory of me just moving to New York just at that moment from Paris and being blown away by the excitement of the city. Yeah. Andy? You, you, we met in 1990. So if we're yeah. going to talk about the 90s, that's a perfect foray into the first year of the 1990s, right? You I and know. I met, uh, you and I met Adam Schlesinger in 1990. Um, you had told me that not because you wanted to be a singer, not because you were involved in the music business, but by sheer, sheer chance. This is before we started Ivy. The first time I ever heard of Stereo Lab was because you said, like, right before I got to New York, so this is like, I guess this is late eight, 1989, your boyfriend was friends with the singer, Leticia, from Stereo Lab, and so you had been hanging around a rehearsal studio in Paris chatting up in the lounge smoking cigarettes with this girl that went on to London to start Stereolab. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting, like I was telling you, um, Chip, that I, you know, I was such a music fan, right? And I was going to all these concerts in Paris all the time. And, but very obscure band. And, and there was always a girl the same age as me who was always there, like me. She would not miss one concert. And it was Leticia from the band Stereolab. <laughs> So we would we were not friends, but we would always recognize each other. She wasn't we, in Stereo Lab at the time. Yeah, no, no. Just was, like you were not in Ivy at the time. No, we were just right. like two girls who are obviously huge music fan and very young to go to concert. But here we were and all these very obscure bands. And she was always there. And then she would be there in the rehearsal studio in Paris because her boyfriend was in a band, just like my boyfriend was in a band. So it was really funny. And then and then years later. Here she is. She moved to London. I moved to New York. She's in a band. She's a singer in a band. And I became a singer in a band. So that was kind of interesting to see like very similarities, but just we chose two different, you know, two yeah. different continents. Um, but yeah. Andy, were you born and raised in New York? No, I was born in um, Chevy Chase, Maryland. Okay. How did you know up in New York? Uh. I was supposed to go to work for my father in DC, basically in the DC area. He had a real estate development company. And I guess halfway through college, by the time I was 1920, I realized that was never going to happen. And my dream was really just to go somewhere and start a band. And being such a, you know, a huge fan of British music. I think had I been more worldly, I probably would have gone to London. But thank God I didn't, because I would never have met Dominique. We wouldn't have our kids. I mean, the future would have been very different. But because I was so provincial, I guess, um, I relegated my options after college to either going to L.A. or New York. But, right, this is the late 80s. So at that time, the L.A. scene was, there was no real scene that I liked. I mean, the West Coast was out of question the east coast i mean my hometown dc was like you know that that was like hardcore scene um it really made sense to go to even montreal would have made more sense in the in the late but anyway so i obviously i went to new york um and tried to start a band as this as the lead singer 
And, you know, I don't have to get into the whole story about what happened, but like, like we just said it a minute ago, Dominique was, you know, I met Dominique. She, we fell in love. Um, the end of the first year, so at end of 1990, we met Adam Schlesinger. And by 1994, we were playing our first show as Ivy in a crappy little club down in the East Village with, I, I'm not exaggerating, there were like six people in the audience. It was Ivy's debut show. And the artist opening up for us, solo, with no band, was Cat Powers. And um, the audience member was our favorite. We, the biggest thing we can remember, looking back in, in retrospect, is we were so excited that one of our heroes was in the audience to, to come see us. He, he had, none of us had ever heard of Cat Power, right? She was, um, and that, that show, describing her show is a whole nother story because it was unbelievable. Um, she kept starting a song and then stopping after a minute and apologizing to everybody um, and then trying to start it again. And I was like, this girl needs to find another line of work because it's, it's, it's music is not going to work. Like, thank God I'm not an A&R &R <laughs> guy. Um, but the guy who came to see us, because he had been reading the fanzines at that point, um, was the East River Pipe. Now, that's a real mm -hmm. obscure. Oh, really? I know. Yeah. I, I don't know their music that well, but I know. Of You've them. heard. Yeah. So he was famous in the, in the 90s for making... You know, today we call them bedroom tapes, but back back then in the '90s, it's pretty hard to make bedroom tapes. We didn't have the technology, but he had like I, I believe it was a Tascam Portis studio. Basically, you recorded on a cassette tape, and you got four tracks. And he was recording in his in his little apartment, and we were he we being Ivy, me, Dominique, and Adam, we were huge fans of his stuff, and we were absolutely over the moon and and nervous to see that he was in the audience to see us. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I think I became aware of East River Pipe, if I remember correctly. I uh Chris Whitley did a tour where he did like two or three nights in a city. It was on his um, I think the Den of Ecstasy tour. And I was a young college journalist. Or no, I was right out of college. I was a young journalist and I was like, I wanna take on an I wanna I wanna pretend like I'm at like Spin Magazine and spend seventy two hours with Chris Whitley and his publicist said the guy smokes like a chimney. You don't want to hang out with him for 72 hours. Um, so, so I did get to go hang out with him in his hotel room. And he had, um, and I don't know if you knew him, but he had a boom box and just like stacks of CDs. And, yeah. and he was a big East River fan. And I think oh, that's cool. how I heard about him. That was before the streaming era. So I'm not sure that I ever heard him at the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, but I definitely am aware of, of that band. So New York. I don't know if 1990 was any cheap. I'm sure it was cheaper than it is today, but what were, oh, you, yeah. what were you doing to pay rent in those early days before the band started taking off? So for me, uh, I remember um, when I got my first place, at first I came and I stayed with a family for the first year because I, you know, I couldn't afford anything. But then when I finally started to get jobs, you know, I was working in a, in uh as an assistant photographer for this this photographer in soho and uh but you know i was legal i didn't have a visa you know i had a tourist visa but that expired after three months right so i had to be paid cash and so it was really hard for me to find an apartment and i didn't have that much money but i did find a place and i used to pay like i still remember 500 cash every month and um 
But that was the other thing that happened to us is that eventually, two years later, I got caught and I got deported. <laughs> so imagine me like a young, you know, Parisian girl who's basically being interrogated for five hours, you know, separated from my boyfriend and like basically kicked out of the country for like 10 years. And uh, so, that you know, there was a lot of craziness in my life at that point. But uh, but I felt like, you know, in the 90s in New York, everything was possible. And that's why I loved this moment. Uh, because even though it's, you know, New York, like, like they say, if you, if you, you know, if you can't make it in New York, you can't make it anywhere. That's true. But in the 90s, there was a sense of all possibility still because there was so much energy. And, and you had, um, you know, today it's like, it is only rich people in New York. I mean, everybody's living because you really literally cannot you know, it's not sustainable here unless you have a lot of money. But back then you could do, I mean, I, I was illegal. I could find jobs. I could find an apartment. I mean, I could do pretty much anything except yeah. I get deported. <laughs> Besides that, but I lived here illegally, not like I'm proud, but almost three years. <laughs> Before you got caught. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have to remember the 90s, it was, for us, it was a very charmed, period in our lives. I, you know, we'll never be able to recapture that. And part of it is just the era, right? I mean, it was pre-cell phones, mm -hmm. pre-social media. So you had, you know, a, a major city like New York that attracted the best of the best in the world, but they weren't, um, they weren't multitasking. When you were out with somebody, they, you had eye contact. You had, you had to make an effort to see each other. You couldn't just like shoot off a text and then maybe hey, at the last minute, hey, sorry, I can't make it. Like when you said you were going to meet somebody, that's it. You're committed unless you stand them up because you didn't have a way to get out of it. There was, and when you're dealing with people who are really in the orbit of New York City, it's a very exciting when you, you know, it's very different now, obviously. You know, everybody's distracted. Everyone, you know, they have one eye is on you and their other eye, like a chameleon is going the other direction. It's something else. So there was this period of like very focused creative energy from everybody that we met. Everyone was really focused on everyone else. When you met somebody, you were so in their, in their orbit. And, um, and then we're talking about New York city, which was, you know, the music industry was exciting. Um, technologically things were just exploding the techno technology with in the recording industry. It hadn't imploded yet, you know, with the advent of digital, we're talking about the nineties. So it was still like the great era of getting record deals and the, the dreams, all your dreams could come true. You know, my dream, like sitting on my bed as an 11 year old with my tennis racket, with my eyes closed, pretending I'm on stage in Chevy Chase, Maryland, suburbia. Like I went to New York and it happened, you know, like your dream really could come true in the nineties. Um, we're just this magical, wonderful time that I, you know, I can, I mean, I don't want to sound like an old timer, like it'll never be like that again, kids, you know, like, but it won't, yeah. it may be, be something new and exciting, but it will never have the kind of exuberant, exciting charm that New York radiated in the nineties. Sure. Were, were you going to see a lot of shows? I think you said you were going up a lot of clubs. Not only were you doing that, but were you watching, were you watching bands literally almost get signed as I walked off stages? Yes, you saw that a lot. Yes. Remember yes. that? 
like we would go see bands and a lot of times that would be like we knew because we knew there was uh, NR people in the room and we knew they were watching this band and I remember thinking oh my god I'm so, I'm hoping that they're going to really sign this band like race you know and it was really happening like that it was uh, it was, yeah, completely different than today where, you you know, for a band to be signed, they have to have this y- huge amount of heat on, you know, whatever, Instagram, Spotify. Followers, likes. Followers. Yeah. 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 Back then it was like a band plays live and they have something and then they get a deal. You yeah. know, that, that was it. It was really about the music, nothing else. And in clubs small enough where when you were there standing in the audience, you would discreetly sort of turn your head to the left, turn your head to the right. And then I'd whisper to Dominique, I'm pretty sure those are A&R guys over there. And we'd look and you could just tell, right? You could just tell the, you know, any, all, most of the bands, including ourselves, were all playing small clubs back then. And New York was mostly filled with small clubs. I mean, the small clubs, in fact, were the cool places to play. You know, there was CBGB's was still alive then, you know, uh, Mercury Lounge, uh, Wetlands. There was maybe like eight or nine clubs Mm -hmm. all under 400 or 500 people capacity. Mm -hmm. And literally they had a monopoly on all the bands that were either signed, that were just starting their career or bands that the, you know, the rumor mill was saying they're going to be signed. And any given day, like I said, you just look around and you could tell there are A&R guys there, you know, once in a while from my days predating Ivy. Those A&R guys, I, I had met them, right? So I'm like, I'd nudge Dominique. I'm like, that guy's from Capitol Records. And she's like, no way, Capitol's here? <laughs> you know, like, and we're looking at this crappy band on stage. But no, they were cool. But it, it's, uh, that's never going to happen again. Come on. Yeah. Um, because the Dig Me Out podcast is about bands, not all, all bands, but some bands that we always say, like, overlooked and underappreciated. Was there a band at that time that you saw that you were like, these guys are are going to get that deal and they never did? Oh, well, I'm sure. That's a good question. Well, first of all, before I forget, Ivy was known as the rabbit's foot, the lucky charm for all bands. If you opened up for Ivy, guaranteed you're going to have success, right? <laughs> I mean, if we... Okay, not to skirt your question, because we can get back to that, since we want to go off on a tangent. Let's name the bands that opened up for us that were not famous at all. And then sometimes we were disgruntled. We're like, why are they warming up for us? Like, we're bigger than them, right? And they went on to, like, sell millions of records. Yes, yes. Real quick, before you answer, before you tell me those bands, was was this after you were signed? Or was it while you were trying to get signed? No, after we were signed. Okay. Okay, so what... But this is, like, the heart of the 90s, you know? before I hit record, you said Oasis was one of those bands, or you opened for Oasis, but who are some of those bands that opened for you that ended okay. up Okay, or, or let's say, let's make it more general. We played together on sure. a bill. Yeah, yeah. Whether yeah. we opened for them or they opened for us, but they were as little known as us or worse, and they went on to stardom, right? Um, uh, come on, Dominique. Well, we should ever clear? Ever clear. <laughs> um, uh, wait. Uh, the band from California, the guy with the gravelly voice, um, walking on the subway. Uh, that's Smash. massive, massive hits. Smash Mouth? Yes, thank you. Smash Mouth. Oh, yeah. yeah, Smash Mouth, remember? Yeah, yeah, I remember. The guy was a little bit of a dick. But, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Smash Mouth. Okay, of course, Oasis. Um, 
wait, I can't believe that there was a long list. I know. Of, uh, I can't remember now. All right, so go back. I'm going to keep thinking about that. Oh, sure. Kat, I mean, even Cat Power. She oh, was, it's Cat Power. Yeah, she Thank was you. nothing. Cat Power. Cat Power. Yeah, Cat Power. Yeah. yeah. Who, um, by the way, were huge fans of Cat Power. And our, our daughter, yeah. actually, our kids are huge Cat Power. They love the story yeah. of Cat Power opening up for us. Yeah. Um, but of course, Cat Power. Okay. Um, while you're thinking, I'll tell you a story. I was at the CMJ okay. convention in, I don't remember the year, but I went to go see some Columbus bands that had gotten a, on a showcase. And my memory's a little bit fuzzy from that time period. And I don't know if it was like an Ohio showcase or whether Columbus bands got on a bill with sort of like the earlier Guided by Voices. Mm. And I was at, um, I want to say Under Acme, maybe. Was oh, yeah. Club I was oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all the time, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I remember watching the Columbus bands and being all excited, like I like I see these guys back in Columbus, and they work at record stores and they work at restaurants, and I know these guys. And then the club is starting to fill up, and then Guided by Voices comes on, and some guy walks in and stands in front of me and blocks my view. And I'm six two, so I'm like, this guy's like six four, six five. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I've been here all night watching these bands, and this guy comes, and it's it's not sinking in. And then I see a woman walk in, and I look up, I'm like that looks like the lady from Sonic Youth. And it was Thurston Moore oh. standing right in front of me and blocking my way. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so he was there to see Guided by Voices. He's that tall? He's that he, tall? Thurston, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He's super tall. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think I have other stories about CMJ. Like, I remember going to the Continental Club and, uh, oh, yeah. and, and yeah. just jo- Joey Ramone is just standing there. Oh, yeah. wow. I went to like a four o'clock showcase or something and I'm like, it, it was a pay. I remember there was a pay phone to your point about not having a cell phone. And I went and I called my wife. She wasn't my wife at the time. She's my girlfriend. And I'm like, Kate, Joey Ramone is 10 feet away from me. And he's just standing there. Like he's a rock star and he's just standing there watching this band. It was insane. I know. He's a- uh, another tall guy, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, Space Hog. Oh, Space Hog. Space Hog. The, lead, the lead singer, his claim to fame in our world is that he was the assistant engineer on one of the early Ivy sessions, and he was the one who set up all the microphones on the drum set. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. So if you, look on, if you look on our album, Realistic, you'll see a credit, um, assistant engineering by Royston Langdon. Yep. Ah. I was actually looking at all music, and I, saw, I was going to ask you about that, about whether he was Royston of Space Hog at the time, or was he just like a studio guy? Like, did you know who he was? No. no, no, I don't even think he had that band yet. He was just a dorky, skinny little shrimp of a like, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Oh, all right. Yeah, he had a, he had a cute British accent. He was very sort of, uh, I mean, as he should be, you know, he was very like, can I get you anything? What he, he wasn't even the engineer, he was an assistant engineer. And um, I remember when Space Hog blew up, Adam coming to uh, telling us, he's like, hey, by the way, you guys, again, Ivy in our little rabbit's foot. Guess who's really who's more famous than us now? I'm like, what? <laughs> Who? Remember that little cute British guy that set up the microphones on the drum set? I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, guess what? He's like a huge rock star now. I was like, Damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to jump forward and then I'll come back to a couple of questions. But um, so I, as I was looking at all music and all the different credits, Ivy was the three of you. Yeah. You had people play. Were they session musicians? Were they friends? Were they hired guns? The people that the other people who played on the records and that toured with you, um, how did those? How, what was your relationship to those people? 
Well, we had, you know, all of it. Like we had obviously a lot of friends who would play on records and sometimes they would come and if they could play on tour with us. But a lot of times when we would go on tour, because obviously the three of us, we would do like all radio shows and in store, we would do just the three of us. But when we went on tour, we needed a full band. Yeah. So we would basically, yeah, in, like hired audition musicians and, you know, try to, we usually like, we didn't really like session player because, because they're technically great, but they don't get the feel. So we would, we were very specific about what kind of music, musician we wanted to have. And, you know, because New York was filled with musicians, it was not really hard to find them. And, uh, and then sometimes we would hire for record a trumpet player. We would hire like session player or string quartet. So there would be like session players. So we did a bit of everything. But, you know, a lot of our friends ended up playing on the, we love to include our friends. So they would come and, you know, we had a recording studio, so it was easy for us to be like, okay, just come over anytime, just, you know, show up. And then if you want to play on it, then great, go ahead. Yeah. So, right. I, I think that, you know, just as a reminder, the nineties for us, for the band Ivy, um, we were really um, learning our instruments um, as we got signed. We were at the tail end of what was called the shoegazing scene. And it literally was called shoegazing for a reason. And we lived it because we were so stage. We had such stage fright, partly due to inexperience and partly because we knew we couldn't play our instruments that well. So we'd be staring at our feet, <laughs> gazing at our shoes. Um, so that goes hand in hand with the sort of anti- philosophy of session musicians you know right. like we really rejected that but we were also lucky enough to be in a band with adam schlesinger who i don't think people realize people who who are aware of him i i don't think they even understand how gifted and brilliant a musician he was you know i'm okay i'm solid if i play drums or bass guitar but i'm not like you know i'll never be on good you know Guitar Player Magazine. Adam was a prodigy on everything. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess the shoegazing aspect was more Dominique and I, you know, but we were anchored by someone like Adam. And so to get back to your question about who, who the musicians were, it was tough because while we didn't pull from the typical cast of characters who were known as like the New York City 1990s, like session musicians, we had a very, very scrutinizing band member in Adam that only would, could stand to be playing with the highest caliber of musician. Yeah. So what we ended up with were really the best of the best, but in a cool way. Mm -hmm. Guys who were not session musicians, because like us, that just went against the grain of, of what we stood for. But they could have been if they had wanted to. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, we, like when we went on tour, like I knew this band, um, and I, you're ninety, you're a nineties band, and it seems like you know a lot of these names. So the band Figdish, Figdish, they were on A and M for like two records. Yeah. Uh, I think honestly, like I think I talked to them. I was a huge fan, uh, yeah. but I think I talked to them, and I think on A and M they sold a total of like eight thousand CDs. So they were, oh boy, they got yeah. dropped. Yeah, they got dropped. But um, on their on their on one of their tours they had to hire a drummer and i remember them 
pulling into town and they were saying like the drummer is on salary and he's making more. And oh yeah. We, like, we, like we don't even know this guy. I mean, we met him and, and like he plays with us, but like this guy's not part of the, the recording lineup and we didn't grow up with this guy and he's making more cause we're barely making any money on the Oh yeah. Tour. But that's, that, that was true for us too. Like, you know, we, we have the record deal with the songwriters, with the, but at the end, you know, we, we, we didn't make really, at least at the beginning when, you know, the first few years of touring, we never made money, but we had to pay our musicians, of course, yeah. it's totally normal. But so they were making more money than us until we started to get a lot of licenses and things like that, where we started to, you know, money came in. But yeah, for, for years and years. Yeah. But that's yeah, I mean, part our, of the van rental company got paid for the van that we rented for two months. Uh, we had a budget for the gas. So the gas stations got paid. Um, the Motel 6s and the Holiday Inns got paid. Um, Denny's got paid. Denny's, oh man, Denny's made a fortune off us. Um, and do you remember Cracker Barrel? Back then, Cracker Barrel actually- luxury had, place. <laughs> no, Cracker Barrel had a, 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 a nationwide policy yeah. that if you showed up and proved you were a band on tour, they would feed you for free. That's wow. right. And, I that. But, and once in a while, we'd have like a really ornery manager who would demand to see like, well, just because you look like musicians, like, so we'd go to the van, we'd bring back a guitar. Is this proof? No. Remember, we had to bring in t-shirts and promo, black and white promo pictures right. of us. Yeah. And then they were like, oh, can you sign this? And like, they didn't even know who we are. But everyone got paid. Our musicians got paid. The tour manager got paid. We didn't get paid anything. No, right? of course not. Yeah. Nothing. That's the way, that's the way it was. But yeah, then, but we were the primary songwriters and, you know, down the, it all gets it all gets worked out in the end, right? Because we sure. ended up making money um, more than we thought we were would be ever capable of. Um, so those early years of grumbling about not getting paid, and the musicians are making more. You know, it's like it, it evened out. Right. I, I I think I heard on that other podcast that your first deal was for fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. You and then we our lawyer, so at the end we made nothing. <laughs> wait, wait. This is really interesting. It's I think our okay. Our first deal was $12,000. I think the 15 number comes from, do you know how much we had to pay our lawyer? Oh, yeah. That's to right. Negotiate the deal? $15,000. <laughs> so by the time we inked the deal, we were already $3,000 in debt. <laughs> and our lawyer said, you know what? Don't pay me. I mean, you owe me the money, but don't pay me now. Yeah. He's like, I just started my practice. You know, I've only been out as an entertainment lawyer for like five years. I work for another firm. It's the first year I've started my own firm. I believe in you guys. You'll owe me the 15. I'm sure you're going to be good for it in the future. So the 12,000 we got as an advance, we didn't have to pay our lawyer. Oh, that's good. Um, and it was a good bet for him because he was just starting out. So you know who his clients ended up being? <laughs> Elvis, oh, Costello, oh, Elvis oh. Costello after us. Oh, oh, by the way, it's not just bands. It's not just bands with the rabbit's foot thing. It's not just bands. It's anyone who associated <laughs> with us. So our lawyer, who we were his first client, he ended up being who, Dominique? Wilco, Yola Tango, Costello. Uh, I don't know. Just so many. like so many. Right. But all, all after Ivy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you, you got signed originally to Seed. and and if. Like, 
in the nineties, I remember all these labels had like these, I don't know if they were boutique labels, but they, they had all these like kind of, so seed was part of Atlantic, right? Yeah, it was. Seed it was seed. a dirty little secret. Yeah. 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 I have, I have stacks of CDs of labels like that, that I'm like, how does that roll up to something bigger? And, and um, what was seed? Was it, was it set up to be sort of like in, in a baseball term, sort of like the minor leagues and then you'd get bumped up to Atlantic at some point or was seed yeah. sort of a standalone? No, it was really like that. It was just a, a tiny label that Atlantic gave a tiny bit of money to. And they say, you know, you just signed, um, this band and then we'll see you know if they end up having some success maybe we'll pick them up you know atlantic proper but otherwise just like bye so that that was kind of like you know had you said development uh artists had you said any well, like yeah developing artists yeah. um yeah well it was the technical term was upstreaming like you know salmon swimming up against the current yeah. right so upstreaming um if if you signed a seed and you seemed promising, then they would quote unquote upstream you into Atlantic. I mean, basically to use your analogy, um, it's as if the mine, if the minor leagues were owned by the major leagues in secret, that's what was going on. So oh, what yeah. was really interesting about the 1990s is that the, in the early nineties, the label started to realize that, um, their major label tactics, which worked in the 80s, weren't working in the 90s in the same way. The bands that they wanted to sign wanted to have nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it wasn't a matter of like, well, any label that would want me, I wouldn't want to be part of that label. You know, it wasn't the self-hatred kind of thing. It was more like major labels are not cool and we're going to do it indie. Right, so the term indie was was really becoming a, a known thing in the in the in the nineties. Right, we were an indie band. It just means independent, independent minded, independent thinking. So the labels started to realize that all the cool bands in the nineties that they wanted to sign would have wanted to have nothing to do with them. And it's no wonder that if you look at the, the especially in the early nineties, this just this explosion of independent labels came up to meet the need of the many cool indie bands that were coming coming of age at that time right. looking for a home and would never consider atlantic or capital or Electra, right so but also the major label didn't know how to market bands like us so bands from the 90s because we didn't have big radio yet or you know they you know we were not very sellable so they would confuse you know, we were not commercial. We didn't sound mainstream. So they would not even know how to deal with bands like, like that. So I think having these, you know, younger guys coming and saying, well, we know what to do with this band, you know, college radio, you know, like, you know, very uh, cultish press, you know, like, so that's what they were doing. They were concentrating and the major labels were waiting to see if this little band could, you know, have success on a bigger scale. Right. So Atlantic, for example, we use us as an example, right? Mm -hmm. So Ivy is considering labels in New York City. And Atlantic might have been interested in signing us, but we would never consider Atlantic for the reasons I just explained. So they, they're like, well, what if we set up a pretend label that's a quote-unquote indie label? And we don't tell the bands. So they set up Seed Records. 
So Seed Records approached us and they're like, um, and we're like, oh, that's cool. It's a New York City, it's a new New York label. You know, I don't know when Seed was created. It's probably 1992, right? And we signed to them in 1994. We were excited to be one of the first bands on their roster. We were signed, you know, they had Matt Rose, um, who we were fans of, and another kind of local New York City band. Mm-hmm. It was good enough for Matt Rose. It was good enough for us. And it was only when we, their advance, like when we signed to them, they gave us $12,000 and then we found a lawyer and our lawyer said, well, it's going to take 15,000 to negotiate the deal. We're like, what's there to negotiate? We're just signing. He's like, no, 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 hold on. The paid, this contract is an 85 page contract. We're like, what? We're signing to an indie label. Yes. But, and he's like, shh, they're owned by Atlantic. And we're like, what? It was a huge scandal. Right. But guess what? Every capital Electra, RCA, every label, every major label had its indie, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. in disguise. So I, I'm, I, I follow along, like I was looking, trying to get information. I don't know how accurate Wikipedia is, but so did you get dropped by Seed and Atlanta picked you up or was it, um, or was it one of those things where they sort of fake dropped you? I know. So Atlanta can pick it up. Yeah, Atlantic picked us up on the second record. Uh, and well, they then- shut Seed down. Okay. They shut Seed down. Oh, they did? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, a, you know, it's like typical, typical corporate is exactly why we didn't want to sign to a major, right? Yeah. Because for a, a myriad of reasons, including but not limited to, like legal talk, uh, not enough record sales, not enough people coming to your shows, not enough this, not enough, you get dropped. Yeah. And we didn't want to deal with that. We wanted a career. And so we signed to an indie. Uh, unbeknownst to us, it was actually a fake indie owned by Atlantic Records. And after a couple of years, Atlantic was like, all right, well, that was a cute little experiment. And then they shut it down. And all the bands were dropped, except but- for Ivy and Matter Rose. We were, quote unquote, upstreamed to Atlantic. Got it. In those early days, because you said that you weren't, not that you weren't writing hits, but that you weren't getting. Like radio wasn't, you weren't writing hit songs, right? No. Um, who, who were, like, did you have early champions in the press or radio or were there, were there people that, that really got behind you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We had a lot of radio stations. We really liked us, but they were not the big, you know, radio station. They were like the smaller, cooler, like KCRW in LA was a huge, huge supporter. WFMU in New York or whatever. I don't remember the names, but sure. there was a, we had a lot of support uh, in the press as well. But, uh, but you yeah, know. I mean, Nick Harcourt. Yeah, yeah. Was, was, I'm Nick sorry. Harcourt, Nick Harcourt is a name I remember early on championing us. And he was, yeah. he had a radio station outside He's, of New York. Oh, okay. But then he also KCRW in yeah. LA. Neither. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the problem with us is just that we are, you know, for a 90s band, we're very different in, in many ways. Like we, we didn't sound like we were not part of any kind of 90s scene because, you know, you had the grungy scene, definitely not. You had the, the, I like the, you call it the grungy. <laughs> the, it the sounds like my mom. Grunge, it, grunge. We had the very grungy scene. <laughs> the grunge scene. And then you had the power pop, which were not either. And then, you had, you know, and... So we were like totally like our own thing. And I think people were very, very confused to how to market us and, you know, who's going to, 
you know, like us and who's going to play us. So we we always did our thing. And what we finally, for us, the magical thing was just that when when finally a music supervisor discovered our music and said, you know, this is the perfect band to use in movie soundtrack or or to use in TV shows or whatever. And that's when, that's why we were able to continue making records because obviously we never sold enough records to continue. But financially, we made sense for a record company because we were, you know, being being licensed so much. So, is that what is that what happened between Atlantic and Five Fifty? Is that is that Sony Five Fifty is another one of those labels that right is another yeah indie well for a major kind of thing. Well, yeah, but although they were not very into you know we got dropped by by uh, Atlantic, and then we had uh, we were lucky that we had really powerful manager. And uh, they basically were able to find us a, another deal very quickly to re-release Apartment Life. And, uh, but then we didn't, stay, <clears throat> we didn't stay very long on Sony 550 either. And then we moved to Network Records. <clears throat> we the end was the best for us because it was like they, they really knew how to, what to do with a band like us. Yeah. They had the right expectation, you know. <clears throat> 1990s were fueled with great ambition and cocaine and what we, and what we call night talk <laughs> night talk right i remember the first time i ever heard the expression night talk and i asked my my friend who was very drunk at the time he's like uh i'd never heard that expression i'm like is is bill serious what he's saying is that not andy bill's for that ain't nothing but night talk you know and i was like night talk that's cool so Night Talk, 1990s Night Talk. We had every show Ivy played when we were signed to Seed Records and then ultimately Atlantic Records, which was like a three-year period. Every show, we had A&R guys from Electra, from Capital, from RCA, everyone coming, and, and independent labels too, coming up to us. If you guys ever get dropped, you call me. Here's my card, right? This is the 1990s. Everyone had a card. <laughs> You know, and the cards were like really, you know, ornate and some were made of metal. Um, and guess what? We got dropped by Atlantic in the middle of one of our tours. And thank God we had all those cards and we started making phone calls. And not a sing single one of those people, and I'm talking maybe 11 or 12 people, we had their cards. And these are like vice president of A&R, president of a &R, president of the record, right? We called all of them. No one took our calls. It's like the girlfriend of your friend is really attractive until your friend breaks up with her. And then, you know, she's like, yeah, must, she must be flawed, right? So we just realized Night Talk, that was the 90s were fueled with cocaine and Night Talk. And it was very difficult for us to find a home after we were dropped from Atlantic. And like Dominique said, thank God we had um, very powerful managers who were connected everywhere around the world. And they got us a record deal with Sony 550 very quickly. And we lasted, how long did we last on Sony 550? I don't know, six months. <laughs> six months, right? And I, I remember when Sony 5, so Sony 550. Mm -hmm. So remember, we just said earlier on this podcast that our advance on Seed Records was $12,000. Mm -hmm. Sony 550 gave us $300,000 right. to sign with them, right? 300. Now, divided by me and Dominique, even though we're married, and Adam, it's like, that's 200000 for Dominique and I and 100000 for Adam. And that was more money than we'd seen in our entire lives. 
Yeah. And I, that was like, at that point, that was 1997 or eight. Like that's when I officially told my parents, well, I don't need any help from you guys anymore. Like, are you sure? What about Christmas time? No, we're good. Thank you for all the help. Love you guys. Um, Six months later, they drop us. Our managers called us up. Guys, uh, Sony 550 dropped you. We're like, what are you talking about? We're, we haven't even, we're not even halfway through our new album. I know. Well, they dropped you. What, what? They haven't even heard anything yet. Literally. They gave us 300,000 and they drop us? Like, it's crazy. Why wouldn't they at least want to hear some of the demos we're working on? We were in the middle of working on what was to become Long Distance, which, by the way, was our best-selling, you know, like, made so much money licensing-wise. But so Sony 550 dropped us in the middle of Long Distance. And then I, I remember um, our manager said, well, it's, 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 it's nothing personal, but it was an executive decision at the highest level, and they dropped 16 bands. And they just saw a bunch of names. They're like, okay, you guys, you guys, you guys, Ivy. Okay, who's Ivy? Okay, no, no, no. So we all went. So in fact, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to us. We got $300,000. We, we got to keep our album that we were in the middle of making because most bands, given an advance like that, they would have to turn over their master tapes, yeah. everything they were working on during that tenure with that label. They'd have to give that label. Um, no, we got to keep the 300 and we ended up signing to Network, Network Records. And that was Mark Jowett, who was one of the best things to ever happen to us because they really did an amazing, like our whole career really started when we signed to Network. Really. Yeah. So if we can go back a little bit. So you got dropped in the middle of a tour by Atlantic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How, <laughs> like, how does that happen? Are you are, like, do they call your hotel room or like, how does... How does that word come to you? Or does your manager call you or attorney call you and say, you're going to have to pay for the gas and the Denny's and the Cracker Barrel on your way home because uh, the label's pulling out? I still remember like we were on tour and we were playing and maybe in Chicago and we had the guest list and there was tons of people from like, you know, the office in Chicago, like, you know, business. The Atlantic office. Yeah, yeah the Atlantic. And then there was also like a, yeah, marketing people already, it's suddenly no one is showing up. And I'm like, this is very strange. And I was like, this, there must be something going on. And I, I remember Adam and Andy were like, no, it's just whatever. It's, it's a shitty night. It's okay. It's okay. And I was like, no, 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 this is really weird that nobody's showing up. And so we call a manager. And sure enough, he, they knew, but they didn't want to tell us because we're in the middle of the tour and they didn't want to upset us. So it was, uh, it was, uh, I don't even, I mean, I think we've, we we had the money, so we finished the tour. But it was really like uh, like what do we do now? Like it's just this pointless. Like nobody's showing up to. No press people are coming. No radio people are coming to our show. It was really uh, it was kind of a uh, wondering where we're going now. But yeah. uh, but I think we we did finish the tour. Oh yeah, we finished the tour. But we um, yeah, we went into emergency mode on that tour after we were dropped. And it's a good thing that the Shiksa Catholic Parisian singer had two Jews with her. Because we, Adam, Adam and I, we, we went into like Jew mode and we, we figured out a way to like not, not spend the least amount of money on this tour. Now that we're dropped, we had no home, but we were committed to this tour. Yeah. By the way, Jimmy, do you remember, do you remember what happened right before? The, okay. 
we got convinced to do a tour with the Space Monkeys. And we, we, um, this is before like social media, before you could just Google something. There was no Google, right? So like we had to do some research to see who the Space Monkeys were. And we like stayed up late night on MTV and we're like, oh, here's the Space Monkeys video. And we were like, holy shit, this is who we're supposed to tour with? And I remember our manager saying, look, you guys just got upstream to Atlantic. Don't disappoint them. They're really excited about the Space Monkeys. They think this is going to be a good opportunity for you guys. And we we're like, this band sucks. Were they a UK band? Yes. yes they okay. were UK. I remember them. And yeah. so we were opening up for them, but there was way more people coming to see Ivy than them. I mean, you know, they were from England, so they, didn't, they never toured in America. They didn't have a fan base. And, you know, they had a big song on the radio, but it didn't matter like, because you know, nobody really knew them. So we were opening up for them. But basically, people were coming to see Ivy. Do you remember that, Andy? And then it was really, I felt so bad for them because then then Space Monkey would come and play and everyone would leave. It would be <laughs> like 900, 1,000 people in the venue when we're I playing. I with that, that much people. But I remember telling our fan after, please don't leave, don't leave. Just stay, stay <laughs> to see the Space Monkey because I felt so bad. <laughs> so they'd be, you know, 100, you know, whatever, five, six, seven, eight hundred people in the venue. And then after our second, we're opening, right? That's the beginning of the night. And then we go off stage and then we're, you know, we watch the space monkeys go on stage and we look out in the audience and there's like 75 people, you know, and and night after night, it was very, so it was very, yeah. So before that tour, Atlantic records said that they were going to spend whatever it took to make a video for us. And the hat video editor at the time was Toby Tremlett. He had made like a number of like number one, number two, number three videos for artists like us. Um, He was a British guy. And I remember Atlantic said, we're going to spend $150,000 on making this video. So we showed up to this video shoot this is a week before our tour, but in, in our, our tour manager, our managers are telling us your tour is in a week and Atlantic has not approved the budget for your hotels. And we're like, what do you mean? Well, they have an issue with how much your hotels are costing. So they want to limit it to this number a night. We're like, wait, we're going to have to stay in like motel eights or even worse. Like we just want to stay in like holiday inns. It's just $20 a person more per night. They're like, they won't approve it. We're like, so this is what's going on. So we show up to this video shoot with Toby Tremlett, who personally is being paid $100,000, right? And then the rest of the production, another 50, 75,000, almost $200,000. And we're basically going to be sleeping in roach infested motels because Atlantic won't approve it, an extra $3,500, which over the course of two months will allow us to have better sleep. Yeah. And we show up, remember that, Demi? The, um, the catering alone, oh, we esti- the catering alone on that day, we estimated would have covered most of our tour costs. Yeah. And also <laughs> it was just so decadent because, you know, they had three stylists. I don't even use stylists. I don't want anyone <laughs> to dress me. Makeup artists. I don't wear makeup. Just get out. Like it was just so ridiculous. After that, that was it. I remember thinking, we'll never, ever accept that. This is the most waste of money and and time and plus the videos was ridiculous because it's like it was totally not something we would have done 
So after that, we basically did our own video and, and we never, I mean, that, yeah, that was just so, but that was but the that, time. That was the 90s. With that's the 90s. It was the very decadent and, things that just didn't make any sense and whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I don't have any concept of of this next question I'm going to ask. So how did Ivy and Fountains of Wayne, how did, how did Adam balance his time? Well, Adam was completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, workaholic. Yeah. Like he, he, he would sleep only three hours a night. Um, and so he had not only two full bands, but he had also so many other projects, writing for artists, producing other records, doing theater work, doing, you know, movie work. I mean, he was, he was, you know, this is a guy who never slept. So he worked all the time. But he always managed. That was the thing. And when he did one thing, he was really fully, you know, in it. Like so, he he he. But he always needed to do five hundred things at the same time. He was never like one project. That was. Yeah. So, so you never had to put plans on hold because he was going to be out with. Oh, yeah. No, oh, did of course. Okay. We did. But that was okay. You know, it's good. You know, when you're in a band, it's good. You know, when you make a record and you tour a lot. After that, you know, it's it's healthy to take a break anywhere. Yeah. To, uh, but he look. He had as many issues with fountains of wayne due to ivy's schedule yeah right it all worked out it all washed out yeah yeah um but to his credit when 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 we were in ivy mode he was 100 percent there um but it was frustrating because ivy is a was a you know a machine that kept you know forward momentum even when we weren't on tour and there were times where we would need Adam's attention. He was on tour with Alan's and Wayne, or he was, you know, doing a myriad of other things. So it, it's, uh, it was frustrating, but at the same time, we, we recognized his genius, really, and his, um, you know, his, the magnetism that was Adam's messenger. Yeah. Alan. And I think, you know, in retrospect, we were equally frustrated, but also in admiration of him. Um, certainly it was, it was, when it wasn't frustrating, it was inspiring because I always felt like as much as I was an overachiever growing up, I was, I was a big fish in a small pond. Right. So when I came to New York and I met people like Adam, I realized there was a lot more that I could be doing. So in that sense, Adam was really inspirational to see how much he juggled and how much in that juggling he was so um connected to the balls in the air yeah so 90s come to an end and uh management aggressive management good management helps you get these licensing deals in a, in a, and again i don't know anything about licensing deals um did you guys have final sign off on like wait this might not be the right opportunity for this song or were you like whoever wants to use it as long as they pay us we're good <laughs> uh yeah no we always had to approve obviously uh, but you know, most of the time it was, you know, they were always placing our songs in good stuff. I mean, there was one where it was a, a Hollywood, how was it? A Hollywood, uh, Holly, the cruise, the cruise ship ended. Do you oh, remember? Yeah. oh, Holland America. Yeah. Holland America. Because I hate cruise, you know, for me, it's a nightmare. So I was kind of like, oh, this is not I'm like it's a tampon commercial. <laughs> yeah. But it's, to me, it's, it's way worse. So, I was just, I wasn't really sure, but we couldn't refuse the money. <laughs> 300, it was, it was it 150. It doesn't matter. It doesn't it matter. It does. It's in, well, look, we're talking about the 90s. 
We're talking about the excess. We're a band that got signed for $12,000, which is nothing. In, like bands in the 90s were getting yeah. signed to major labels for a million dollars, right? We had no future ahead of us. It's amazing that we had this kind of money thrown at us. And by the way, if you want to talk about the 90s, those licenses do not happen anymore. Oh, no, like they, labels they, today they would be happy to pay for the opportunity. Oh, yeah. right? Back yeah, then, we were having, yeah. right? It cost us $15,000 to pay a lawyer to negotiate our contract. We got paid $150,000 from Holland America Cruise Line to use a song that was just on one of our records. Yeah. yeah. yeah right? Yeah, yeah. It was like we had a blessed life. Yeah. And it was thank you to the 90s for that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was the only, the only one where I wasn't sure because, uh, you know, I really didn't like the cruise, you know, oof. But, uh, but it, you know, we saw, they show us the clip and it was actually really sort of nice and sort of classy for a cruise. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we decided to do it. But otherwise, no, the, the only time was the first time that ever they ever uh, contacted us, which was to use one of our songs in, uh, in a Volkswagen commercial. And that was like really early on. That was 94. And back then, you know, it was like, oh, my God, no indie bands can accept to be in a commercial. That, that would just kill their career, their credibility. And, you know, and, uh, and so we, we really thought about it. At first, I was really against it because I was like, no, no, our fan, out. that's it. They're going to hate us. And, but, and they did. And they did. But we decided to do it because, you know, why not? And so we did. And of course, we lost a lot of fans. We got a lot of like hate fans. Explain how we lost fans, because this is 94, 95. And email is not really the standard. There's no way to communicate other than showing up. Fan letters. Fan letters. Yeah. Yeah, But also showing, paying tickets to our show just to tell us what's selling. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sell out. Yeah. But, you know, we, by us agreeing to be in a commercial, it was incredible because we really started kind of a movement with all these indie bands after us saying yes. So like Luna and so many bands after Gosh. us, uh, they, they accepted, they would, you know, the same thing. They're like, well, you know, we're not on the radio, we're not on MTV, but we, you know, we want to make music. Well, we, that's, that's why not? So they were doing we were the original it. sellouts. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually the fan understood and then, and they, they get used to it and it was okay. <laughs> And so, like I said, we, so we're out of the '90s, and you're licensing stuff. And, and and I think you mentioned earlier, Andy, that um, that this allowed basically Ivy to continue, right? That oh, you're yeah. able to between that and network, right? Network signing you and helping you put stuff out. But really, if it had not been for those licensing deals, would Ivy have made records in the 2000s? Well, we'd we would have probably, probably would have for sure. No, because we would have got dropped, and then you know the only reason we kept going is because the record company, uh, you know, they, they were, they were making money with us. I mean, they were not, at least not a lot, but they were not losing money. So it was a sure thing for them. So they kept signing us. So we kept doing, you know, making records. Well, let's and, not forget to me. Part of our fan base came from the exposure that we oh, had. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. we, I mean, we, tens of thousands of people just in the United States only became fans because we were on like all the big, you know, um, shows in the nineties, the OC, uh, six feet under all the HBO flagship shows. Like we, you know, we had huge placements in them in movies, um, commercials. So, and back then it was really the era, the nineties again, 
sorry, but it was the era of like, like just committed fans who had to really take the extra time to figure out. I loved that show. I love this scene. Or the movie, the something about Mary, which is a '90s cultish movie. Yeah, sure. something about Mary, me, myself, and Irene. I mean, on and on and on. Shallow Hal, yeah. although that was the early two thousands, but half our fan base is is was cultivated from our the exposure that they got to the films and TV shows we were in. Do you see any uh, any very loose similarities to what's going on today with like TikTok? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, definitely. I mean, that's that's what it is. TikTok is what it is. It's like that's how many bands get lucky. Yeah, you know, if they get an exposure on TikTok, and that's it. I mean, it's you see it clearly. I mean, yeah. you see a great band, and you know they've been struggling, you know, to to keep, you know, to stay alive, and suddenly they have one little clip on TikTok, and that's it. Our yeah. kids. You know how many conversations have happened in our household? Like, I'm going to paraphrase. This is a typical day. Mom, Dad, you guys should get on TikTok. You guys could be huge. But you know what? It's really unfair. If you if TikTok and YouTube and all that stuff had been around, like when you guys in the '90s, like you guys would be like world famous. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. But in it's kind of true. Like we yeah. didn't have YouTube. We didn't have TikTok. We didn't have Facebook. We did all we had back then. A little bit at the cusp tail end of our career was MySpace. You imagine if TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all those things had been around in our heyday with the exposure that we got just accidentally already. Um, it's true. We would have had, you know, we would have had more, you know, more of a robust career. I guess. Yeah. So you're doing press now because Apartment Life is being reissued for, or not reissued. It's coming out for the first time on vinyl. vinyl. Uh, and, and again, right, like the 90s, nobody was thinking about vinyl. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Absolutely like I, not. It was over. Yeah. yeah. So um, you got the masters back, and you're able to to put that out. Um, is it is it exciting? Is it feel like something that you're doing for your fans? Or are you doing it for yourselves? Like what is oh, both? The, both. It's very exciting. Oh. Very exciting because uh, I mean, being a huge music fan myself, so I mean, for, for, to have this record on vinyl, I'm super happy. And, uh, and also, it's so many of our fans have been asking for years and years and years. They've been waiting for that. So it's very exciting for our fans, too. And hopefully, like, new people will discover, you know, this, this record. Uh, and, and also, it's great for us because we, 25 years later, 28, I don't remember, uh, we're going back to our roots with the same guy that actually discovered IV, signed us at Barnon. So that's also, like, a really nice little... Um, you know, the end of, the of a circle. Cycle. Yeah. yeah. So Mark, Mark Lipsitz was the head of Seed Records who discovered us, signed us to Seed. Yeah. And when they closed Seed down, Atlantic did, and we got upstream to Atlantic, we had to say goodbye to Mark because he was fired along with, you know, the closing down of Seed. But here we are 25 years later, and Mark is one of the main guys that bar none, who were a huge fan of that label. So like Dominique said, we circled back, you know, quarter of a century later, and um, bar none, Mark Lipsitz is now putting out our whole back catalog. So we, we couldn't be happier about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I mean, as a, as a, as a three-piece three band, I mean, uh, 
would you ever record anything else under the Ivy name or without Adam? Well, yeah, no, I mean, technically we can't because Adam is no longer here, so we right. can't, but we, uh, while we were trying to find all, or, you know, recording of uh, when we were trying to re-release our record on vinyl, we had to go through our archive because everything was recorded on analog, you know, so we had to get all in the, also the, uh, the artwork and everything. And uh, so while we were doing this huge archiving work, we also discovered so many songs that we recorded, the three of us, back in, you know, early 90s until all the way through late 2000. Uh, so many songs that we had forgotten about that were either half finished or some of them recorded, but not mixed. And we get very excited because we're like, oh my God, we have, so, like, we have way enough for double records. I mean, if we wanted to. So we've been thinking about it, trying to see what we could do with that and trying to release it. But Adam would be on it anyway. And that's just, you know, he's, he was there. So maybe we'll do that. Yeah. So we started off by talking about 1990 and as you rolled into 1990. So um, tell me about 2023. 2023. It's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> Can we just stay in the 90s, please? <laughs> I'd be happy for that. I don't want to go to 2023. No, it's okay. I mean, it's not, it, yeah, I would say it's not the best time uh, in the world right now. It's kind of a, but, uh, but we're, still, we're still alive and kicking at this, so that's good. Uh, but we, uh, I mean, what have we been doing? Andy and I have been actually recording some, some stuff together. Like we've been uh, writing some new music and so that's exciting. And uh, we don't know yet what we're going to do with it. We don't have a plan. We're just more like in the creative mode right now. And it feels really good. Um, and um, Andy, well, you can talk for yourself, but Andy's producing a lot of uh, musicians and things like that. And uh, so, well, yeah, it's good, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little annoying detail of three children that we're, you know, trying to raise. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. That's, that's almost, oh, yeah. almost done. <laughs> almost done. Yeah. Except for that pesky little young one. Still has a few more. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, 2019, you know, fast forward from the 90s to 2023. I mean, we've got three children from 23 to 20 to 14 um, that we're raising, like Dominique said, and she interestingly avoided mentioning the name of this project. But um, we're pretty much at the tail end of this new uh, band that we started 10 years ago and we've been working on it drips and drabs it's called the never endings and we are dead set hell-bent on finishing it and releasing it um soon and hopefully it won't seem dated and no one other than you and a few people will know that when it was started but it sounds really you know yeah. so we're excited about the never endings we're like she said we're um considering working on finishing some of these Ivy songs that we discovered in a trove of, you know, a little cachet of unexpected gems that we've discovered that Adam is playing on it. I'm playing on it. So there's possibly new Ivy songs, the never endings. Um, yeah. And I'm always producing bands. I finished a record from a band called Tahiti 80 French band um, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, every couple of years I take on one producing project, just, and then so, those pesky kids. So like I said, we talked a lot about the 90s. Uh, is there anything I missed? 
I mean, there's a lot I miss. Anything, anything, anything you want. You miss the two thousands, but that you know, you're not really missing much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, I don't think it's. It, I I think you covered quite a lot. I, I'm with you guys. I I started my writing my writing career in 1991. I was telling Dominique before you before it was my fault for not letting you in the room. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the, my first interview is with Joey Ramone. It was a phone interview in 1991, uh, and I've been doing it ever since then. And I have this discussion a lot. Like I, I can't live without my cell phone. That being said, I, 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 and we'll never go back these days, but um, I don't know if you ever, I'm not sure if you ever played a club in Columbus called Stashes. Does that sound familiar at all? No. It was, it was, it was like, it was the, the, the club in the late eighties and early nineties where all of the Nirvanas and Chili Peppers and Soundgardens got their start. It was the first, you know, it was a 200 person club. Uh, but, there was no internet, right? So if you wanted to see who was playing, you went and they had a handwritten calendar. Mm-hmm. But you had to go by the club. Yeah. And you had to remember like, oh, in three weeks, this band is coming. I got to make sure I come back because you couldn't look it up and be like, oh, what's going on tonight? So when they, when they put up the fresh calendar for the month, I remember like, you basically like, write it down on your hand or write it on a piece of paper. And, yeah. Like I miss those days. That, there was, that was exciting to go see local bands. It was exciting to see who was coming and make sure you were there. Now there's a million distractions yeah. At my age of 51, like I make every excuse in the book, like, oh, I'm in the suburbs, I'm too far away, or it's a weeknight, or it's going to start too late, or there's something good on TV, or I'm doing something on the internet. And so, yeah, I definitely missed the 90. I, those, yeah. were, those were good times. Yeah, for well, sure. They, they've shown that um, through, through studies that the way that um, experiences and memories go into our long-term memory centers is is a very complicated process but if you explain it like in basic terms it's you have to go through a series of events to figure something out in order for it to go into your long-term memory center and that might be um and it's not a google search that's that's the opposite right anything that's quick um so when i was growing up you know you tried to what's the biggest whale whale in the world Everyone would have their theories. Oh, it's the yellow whale, the, the right whale, the gray whale, the blue whale. You only knew if you drove your bike to the library, went and looked up, pulled the Encyclopedia Britannica and looked it up. That's the process in which our brains remember things yeah. long term, right? So when you so to bring this back to what you just said, so in the 90s, when you walked by the venue at on the first of the month and they just put up their whole schedule damn sure what you saw went in your long-term memory center plus you wrote it down because there was no you couldn't do it you couldn't take out your phone and take us you know unless you had a camera yeah and you'd have to wait two weeks to get the film developed so you had to go through a process to write it down you would remember right but today with all the multitasking that is not conducive to going into our long-term memory center so it's amazing how much stuff i miss like yep. I forget today yep. that never happened in the nineties. We have such concrete memories about the nineties from the nineties, partly because of what I just said. So I like to close interviews by asking, and you didn't really answer it before and that's okay, but um, not necessarily about New York bands. Dig me out. Like I said, does reviews of albums from nineties that may have been overlooked or underappreciated. What would be your suggestion for a band that dig me out should cover? Oh, you from the nineties? Yep. Well, I I I didn't look at all the bands you covered, but uh, let's see. Um, 
Do they have to be New York bands? No, 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 no. In anything from the nineties. The Earthmen. Oh, I don't know who that is. They're from Australia. Oh, we have a lot of bands from New Zealand and Australia. Do you want an American band? No, no. In fact, I'll tell you. So, uh, are you? Do you guys know about Discord? Yeah. Sure. So there's a Discord group for Dig Me Out, and there's a, a number of people from Australia. So uh, okay. they'll be very excited. Oh, okay. The Earthman. There's also I love uh, the apartments, also from Australia, the New Zealand. Yeah. The apartment. There was also well, the Gobi Twins, mm -hmm. but the Gobi Twins were more like maybe late eighties, but they were still doing a lot of things in the nineties. I mean, but they are they. But you're talking about obscure bands, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be, but but things that that you just feel like people oh, but like. The Gobi Twins had a huge following, but they were not, you know, they were never. Okay, so underappreciated bands. I mean, I, honestly, like I I think Ivy is sort of the perfect band for the I know. podcast, right? <laughs> right? I think we are. Yeah. yeah, I think we are. So, what was the band like us? I'm trying to think, like any bands like us that were really. Uh, um, hmm. How about the, the Space Monkeys? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I mean, look, there's the bands that were in our periphery that we idolized, that we feel like were are totally underappreciated, especially in America. That would be like Dominique said, the go-betweens, um, prefab sprout, right? But but in the context of the music world, they they're very successful, right? In terms of like establishing an iconic career. So if you want to talk about under exposed bands well actually that you know our friend and actually you i think well not you but i was really happy to see that you podcast uh uh interviewed him um jody jody, jody, jody porter jody oh yeah, porter. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, because he's a phenomenal musician uh and a really good friend so talented but you know unfortunately he never really had a lot of success for his own stuff you know right. uh so I was really happy that you guys did something for, with him. Awesome. But otherwise, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's hard. Like, yeah, I should have thought about it before. I mean, the, yeah. the Earthman is the first thing that comes to me because we knew them. I, I produced one song for them when they came to New York on tour. And we, we were huge fans of theirs. And I, I don't think they ever really... Um... Epic Soundtrack? Oh, Epic Soundtrack. Epic. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Red yeah. House Painters. Yep. They're already, no, they're sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. I appreciate you guys taking the time. The Rolling um, Stones, of course. No. Oh, Baby Birds. Baby Birds. You know That's Baby a good one. Birds? I like, yeah. Baby, Baby Birds. Birds. I can see the Baby. album. I, th I feel like I can see the album and cover so my head, but I might be thinking of another band, but. British um, band, Baby Bird. Yeah. So good. Cool. Yeah. And anyway. Very good. Well, I appreciate you taking the time talking about the 90s. And um, I guess that's the end. So thank you so All much. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. She